what is the, the essence of the Christian life? Um, how, would you, how would you like to summarize that? Um, onlookers, observers of Christianity are, are naturally asking that kind of question often. And um, uh, uh, as well, it is a, a question that new believers ask. Okay, so I want to follow Jesus. What, 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 it, what, what will that look like in essence? Um, it's a question that many of us who've been Christians for a long, long time um, wrestle with. How, how could I summarize it? How could I put it into, in, into a simple words? Most people, especially observers, the outside world, think of the, the essence of the Christian life is about following a set of rules. It's about a list of do's and don'ts. That's almost the only category that you ever hear in the wider media. Christianity is all about whether you're pro or anti-gay marriage or, or women bishops or wonga or whatever. In Bible terms, to use Bible language, they say Christianity is about law. And there's a, there's a degree of truth in that. The Bible does teach us that there's right and wrong, that there are standards to which Jesus set down. Jesus himself was unabashed about talking about the, the commands of God. The Apostle Paul, even on the odd occasion, spoke of the law of Christ. But actually, if you, if you read carefully the Bible, the New Testament in particular is pretty negative about the category of law. A friend of mine grew up in an obsessively law-based church. Um, in particular, as a young boy, he smarted at the fact that he wasn't allowed to do anything on Sundays except go to church and to read improving, um, preferably Christian, books. And uh, when my friend, um, as a, as a, a, a one time day, as my friend as a young boy, they, they, the family had uh, a visit from a relative who had been converted and come to a living faith in Jesus. And uh, this uh, relative talked to my friend's parents long into the night. And next day, um, my friend as a little boy was sat down by his parents and they, they, they looked a little bit sheepish and they said, we've realized that we were not following Christ in reality. Last night, they said to, to, to him, we became true Christians. And he thought, ah, that's terrible. It's bad enough what I've endured up to now. What are they going to do now? They said, the first thing that we're going to change is that you can go outside and play on the swings on Sundays. No, um, law is not a very good way of summarizing what it really means to follow Christ. The Bible talks about freedom much more than it talks about law. Perhaps we're getting closer to the heart of the matter if we say Christianity in its essence is about faith in Christ. It is about trusting Christ's death on the cross as sufficient to pay for all of our sins, as James was pointing out to, to us just a moment ago. It's about entrusting ourselves to Christ, as uh, Sarah was talking about with the chair and, uh, and so on. It, it, it is essentially about faith. Well, that's much closer to the essence of what it means to be a Christian. 
And the truth is that sometimes it is, it is, very, it is very useful to, to uh, reduce all the complexity of what it means to be a Christian down to something very, very simple. Everything from beginning to end um, of what it means to be a Christian is about faith in Christ. But the Bible doesn't only do that. The Bible actually also wants to, wants to having identified that, that core, show us what the Christian life looks like in, in, in infinitely rich, diverse complexity. In a, in a sense, it's saying the, the Christian life is like a diamond. You could say a diamond is pure carbon, and you'd have said something very, very important. But you wouldn't have said that much about it. Like a diamond, once you've got that essential truth, um, um, you, should, you should lift it up. You should, you should uh, move it around. You should see how it catches the light in different situations. You should see what it looks like on a beautiful woman. And so the Bible is doing exactly that with the Christian life. It is saying, at root it is faith. But now here's a story which illustrates what it's all about. Here's, here's some principles. Here's, here's a whole range of different ways to look at this infinitely glorious and infinitely simple thing. And in a sense, wisdom is all about that. We've been looking at the, uh, or you've been looking, I've, I've been listening in on the internet, uh, the, book, uh, the book of, of, of Proverbs. And the book of Proverbs actually, actually does say some pretty simple fundamental things. For instance, last week Daniel was pointing out to you that at, at root, wisdom is about faith in Christ. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding and he will make your path straight. That is really, really important aspect or, or, or essence of what it means to follow Jesus or what wisdom is actually all about. But also, as Dan Steele was saying, actually, it, it, it also calls us to reflect deeply on the world. We live in an information-rich world, Dan, uh, Dan was saying. And actually, in order to know how to live in this world, in God's world, we need to become scuba divers. We need to go deep. We need to think carefully about what it means. And uh, wisdom, then, encapsulates all of those things and brings them together to give us another description of what it means to live as Christians. And in essence, Proverbs 1 to 4 is saying one thing. Embrace wisdom because it's the good life. What does it mean to follow Jesus, whom the New Testament says is the wisdom of God? What does it mean, in essence? Well, here's another aspect. It means just to follow the good life. Chapters 1 to 4 are just one sustained appeal to us. Choose wisdom. Choose to follow Jesus because it's the good life. 
And in the end, everybody actually makes their decisions in life according to what they believe is the good life. You know, the person slaving all their all hours to earn a bit more money for themselves, and the person who chooses consciously a, le- a less demanding job so that they have more time, they are both making their decisions according to their respective views of the good life. The, the young woman laboring hard to get a good set of A-levels and waiting now on tenterhooks, perhaps, and, the, and her friend who dropped out of school made those decisions according to their vision of the good life. The man watching his wife walk down the aisle to join him and the man walking out of his, out of his family home and slamming the door behind him are making those decisions according to their respective views of what they see as the good life. If we don't have a clear vision of what the good life is, we will make bad decisions. The good life is here, says Proverbs. As, as uh, Christians, we must read Proverbs with Jesus very much in uh, uh, the fore. The good life is found in the wisdom that is in Jesus, in following Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus. Follow Jesus you will find the good life. That's all that he's saying. And he uses it in chapter 4 to sort of bring his initial appeal together uh, before he gets on to some more specific things. He, he brings um, three images to us that I want us to look at to be persuaded that it really is worth bending every effort, everything that we do, towards this vision of the good life that the Bible sets us to, sets before us. First of all, he says in verses 1 to 9, by the way, each of the sections, do you notice, listen, my son, verse 1, verse 10, listen, my son, verse 20, my son, pay attention to what I say. Each, each of the sections is, is introduced by that little introductory phrase, and then a consistent image is followed through each of those sections. And verses 1 to 9, the image is this, To embrace wisdom, to follow Jesus, is about joining a family. Oops, excuse me, getting too excited. It's about joining a family. Verse 1, listen, my sons, to a father's instruction. Pay attention, gain understanding. I give you sound learning. Do not forsake my teaching. I too was a son to my father, still tender and cherished by my mother. Three generations, he describes. He says, I had a father who, who, and a mother who taught me and cherished me, respectively, and now I'm passing this on to you, my son. And what is the essence of his call? Verse 7, the beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom, though it cost all you have, get understanding. Seems a little bit paradoxical um, there. You, you begin wisdom by getting wisdom. I think what he's... What, what, he, what he's trying to say is, you will not find wisdom through abstract thinking. You only begin to find wisdom by embracing it, by, by, by launching into it, by starting to live it, by acquiring it. And we do that acquisition 
in a family, he says. We need mothers and fathers in the faith. We need people who have gone before, who have lived it before, who can help us. I cannot tell you how many times I have been helped by the older saints in Magdalen Road, many of, many of them actually now dead, whose simple words of wisdom have set me on the right course. And as an even younger man in my first church, the, the older Christians were, were water of life to me. Wisdom doesn't come in the abstract. Wisdom comes in the context of living with people from different generations, with people who have gone before. You and I need church. Older Christians, if you're not investing in the lives of younger people, you are impoverishing their lives, you are impoverishing your own life, and you are actually disobeying Christ. It doesn't have to be heavy. They just need to see your life. They just need to be cherished by you. They just need to feel and know that they have fathers and mothers in the faith. This is what the family of God is all about. And younger Christians, you live in a world which is constantly telling you that actually it's your peers, your immediate friends, your inner promptings that will tell you what to do. Because after all, we live in a new world with new uh, rules. And let me tell you, that is utter rubbish. Look. I think it's still alive. It is. That is relatively new. But love and family life and friendship and work and money and happiness were not invented by Apple or even Samsung. And there are people who have gone before who have learned what it means to live the good life. Learn from them. Listen, my sons, to a father's instruction. Pay attention. Gain understanding. How are you going to do that if you're drifting in and out of church as if it was a casual social club or a, or a, or a pub? What, what, what Proverbs 4 is saying is join the family. And you will not only gain fathers and mothers, here's the thing that you will gain more than any of that. You will gain, he says, a lover. She is called Wisdom. She will give you the security you long for. Verse 6, don't forsake wisdom. She will protect you. Love her. She will watch over you. Won't be the kind of superficial security which a good job or a marriage or a house uh, provides for us. It will be the deep security of knowing that there is nothing in all creation that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. The security of knowing that as we give our whole lives to Jesus, he promises that he will meet all our needs according to his glorious, the, the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. The security of knowing that he works in all things for the good of those who love him. People who've lived like that for a few years will tell you it's true. 
I've now got a few decades of uh, Christian walking um, behind me. And I can tell you in our experience, it is true. You come into the family, you, 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 you join in this love relationship with Mistress Wisdom and she protects you. She looks after you. Not only that, she, she, she uh, uh, brings you the honour that you long for. Verse 8, cherish her and she will exalt you. Embrace her and she will honour you. You are unlikely to appear in the Queen's birthday honours list. I don't think it happened to any of us this year, did it? No. But you will appear in Jesus' honours list. You will receive a well-done, good and faithful servant when you meet him face to face. If you embrace Mistress Wisdom. And for women here, perhaps you need to do a bit of gender switching just to get the image that he has uh, has in mind. I think you're permitted that, but I'm going to stick with the feminine that is used here. Find that lover. She will exalt you like a a wife who loves constantly to praise her husband and and to set him up. So wisdom will do that for you. And she will give you the success you long for, verse 9. She will give you a garland to grace your head and present you with a glorious crown. Some think that's just another aspect of honour in general. Some think it's a marriage image because garlands and crowns were used at, at weddings. Probably, slightly more prominently in the images, is actually the victor's prize. Garlands and crowns were given to the winners of a race. As the Apostle Paul said towards the end of his life, verse 2 Timothy 4, verse 8, There is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. You will be victorious. You will receive a crown. As the dodo said in Alice in Wonderland, everyone has won and all must have prizes. And that in every other area of life is complete rubbish except the Christian life. Because in the Christian life, you see, we not only must, we will complete the race. We will receive a crown. God's Spirit ensures that we will. And that crown, says Proverbs 4.9, will be conferred on us by Mistress Wisdom. Or perhaps by Mr. Wisdom, Jesus himself. She is so precious. She is worth giving up everything for. Verse 7, though it cost all you have, get understanding. There she is. She's here. You cherish her. You love her. You embrace her. She promises she will protect you. 
She promises she will give you honor. She promised she will give you success, victory at the end. She promises you all of those things. She promises them, those promises are so great and so wonderful, they're worth leaving everything at the door for, frankly. But she says this one thing, I'm not leaving this family. You want me? You join with the mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters who are already here. It's about joining a family, this good life, because there you find wisdom. Second image, we'll look at it slightly more briefly. Joining a family, yes. It's about following a path, verses 10 to 19. Listen, my son, verse 10, accept what I say, the years of your life will be many. I instruct you in the way of wisdom and lead you along straight paths. The Bible often uses the image of a path or a road as, the, as, as um, uh, following Jesus. Last, last week, Daniel was pointing out Proverbs 3.6 says that there are straight paths promised for those who trust in the Lord. That is not a promise, sadly, that you'll be able to see the whole map of your life ahead of you, at least in detail. It's not even a promise, contrary to what the surface of the text suggests, it's not even a promise that it'll be sort of absolutely a straight motorway and you just need to... uh, um, uh, just need to keep walking in one direction. The, the image um, that the Bible uses more often is rather like the Israelites in the desert who, who, um, who had to um, move each day following Jesus. Now, the, the, the key thing that the Bible author wants us to see is that you walk on this path with wisdom, holding on tightly, you will not stumble off the edge and you will not trip, be tripped by undergrowth. Verse 12. When you walk, your steps will not be hampered. When you run, you will not stumble. But in this section, 10 to um, uh, 19, that, that there are two paths, in fact, set before us that we need to see. The other path is the path of wickedness. Verse 14, do not set foot on the path of the wicked or walk in the way of evildoers. Avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn from it and go on your way. The path of the wicked is not peaceful and contented. It is restless and ill at ease. Verse 16, they cannot rest until they do evil. They are robbed of sleep till they make someone stumble. You get the picture? They are restless until they can do others down. The restless tongue that loves to gossip because it diminishes others. The restless academic who is obsessed by proving another scholar wrong and so doing him down. The restless person at work who is climbing the slippery pole of their career and they will stand on the heads of other people uh, uh, as they go up. The restless banker who celebrates with a bottle of Bollinger that he has manipulated the LIBOR rate and doesn't care a toffee 
that he has actually hastened the downfall of the banking system. The restless child who wants to divide friends in the playground in order to gain a few friends for themselves. There is a restlessness that cares little, indeed goes beyond that, that positively wants to do others down. They cannot sleep until they make someone else stumble because somehow they think that will elevate them. That is not the way to greatness and the way to the good life. It is fed by wickedness. It finds its pleasure in violence, he says. They eat the bread of wickedness. They drink the wine of violence. Meat and drink to them, all of that. Then Solomon presents these two paths in stark contrast in the next couple of, uh, of verses. As if, just picture it, as if, as if it's the dawn of a new day. And um, we were last week in northern Spain um, in some beautiful limestone mountains. Imagine yourself there. The dawn of a new day and the peaks of the mountains are just getting a little bit pink because the sun is about to come up. And there, as the light comes up, you, you, you can see a path. It winds up into the high meadows. There's, there's the promise of delicate flowers, of, of lush pastures, of fresh streams. And yet in front of you, there's a cave, as often occurs in limestone scenery. It's cold, it's dark, you have no torch. In those days, bears could be found in such caves. I don't think they are these days in Spain. There are rocks to catch our feet. There are stalactites to bruise our heads. There are gaping holes, perhaps, in the floor to underground caverns. It's a, it's a dangerous place. Where, where are you going to go? Which are you going to choose as the sun comes up? Cave or path? path of the righteous, verse 18, is like the morning sun, shining ever brighter till the full light of day. But the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. The tragedy is that human beings stumble into the cave. And they, and they trip up and they don't even know what they've done. That's what he's saying. What stupidity. What a ridiculous cause of action. Open your eyes, he says. Look at what God is offering. He is offering you a path to light. Follow it. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus here, ask God to open your eyes so that you will not stumble into that cave. Some of us here are old enough to remember Robert Maxwell. He was once a great man in the city of Oxford. He, he said he was, the, um, he was living in the finest council house in Oxford because he used to live in Headington Hall um, uh, house and rent it from the city council. He was a millionaire publisher. He was nationally and internationally known. But underneath all of the bluster and all of the success was a lost man. 
trying to cover it up in increasingly desperate ways and actually spiraling into deeper and deeper trouble. Even his close family didn't know the depths of the trouble that he was in until finally he was found floating face down in the Atlantic Ocean. They do not know what makes them stumble. This world is full of people like that, bemused people who stumbled into that cave. Who knows why? They don't. Bitter people who are convinced that it must be someone else's fault because how could I be so stupid? Walk the path of light. Open your eyes, says Solomon. Join the family. Walk the path. And then, perhaps especially for... uh, People who already are established as Christians here, verses 20 to 27, use a third image, the image actually of a, of a whole person, a whole body. He's saying it's not only about joining a family, it's not only about walking a path, it's about staying fit. Verse 23. Sorry, verse 20. My son, pay attention to what I say. Turn your ear to my words. Do not let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to one's whole body. And as James was pointing out, absolutely the heart of our whole body is is our heart. Verse 23. Above all else, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. The Bible, in the Bible, the heart is not just the seat of the emotions, though it actually on occasions does include that, but it is the core of who we are. It is the core of our understanding. It is the core of our, of our motivations. It is the core of our, of our decisions. It is the core of our whole self. You can put on a veneer of holiness. You can, you can put on a, a, a sort of superficial clothes of uprightness. You can, you can whitewash your outside and make it look like sanctity for a while. But sooner or later, like, like, like a great artificial lake, the passions of our heart will burst through that dam and cause destruction. Don't worry so much about the surface. Guard your heart, he says. Let the truth of Christ rule in your heart. Let the protection of Christ settle your heart. Let the hope of Christ motivate your heart. Let the love of Christ captivate your heart. Guard your heart. But then he says it is about the whole body. Verse 24, watch your mouth. Keep your mouth free of perversity. Keep corrupt talk far from your lips. James reminds us we fail in this regularly but he does go on to warn us that that is a very really dangerous failure. Our our tongues are like, 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 like a spark that lights a great fire like a little rudder that steers a great ship. He's not saying always be sugary sweet. He's saying there should be no 
crooked talk, or no perversity, no bad talk, no corruption. We are to be straight talkers. We are to speak the truth in love, as the New Testament puts it. Guard your heart. Watch your mouth. Watch your eyes too, verse 25. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. As we've gone through the process of uh, selling our house, which is still ongoing, I have been absolutely amazed how many people instantly knew our house was on the market. Now, no doubt some people were watching the housing market for good reason. But I wonder how many alerts on Rightmove are more about the wandering eyes of property avarice than they are about simple wisdom. Let alone the industries of style and fashion magazines, of TV programs and, and of course, the darker world of porn which drives the internet. No wonder Jesus said the eyes are the lamp of the body, not meaning that they shine out, but that they shine light in to the very seat of who we are. Heart, mouth, eyes and feet, verse 26, give careful thought to the paths for your feet. Be steadfast in all your ways. Walking is one of those one of those automatic things. Indeed, um, as, a, as a vet, I learned that you can sever the spinal... I didn't do this, honest. You can sever the spinal cord of a dog, um, uh, which does happen sometimes in accidents, and they can still walk. They're called spinal walkers. Most, an awful lot of walking is just automatically putting one foot in front of the other. And I think that's the image that he wants to, wants to have here. Watch how you walk. Watch the rhythms of your life. Watch the things that you do automatically. Your daily habitual actions. Do you, do you automatically pray? Do you automatically pick up your Bible in the morning? Do you automatically stop yourself retaliating when there's something rising in you which makes you want to do that? Do you automatically stop yourself thinking bad thoughts or stop yourself dwelling on, on false fantasies? Do you automatically avoid the place of moral danger? Do you have habits that have just become part of who you are. The bread and butter of wisdom, the bread and butter of the Christian life is good habits. So there we have it. What is the essence of the Christian life? There are, there are so many different answers you can give, uh, give to that. But but look at this facet of the, of, of the duel that is being a Christian, says Solomon. It's the good life. It's just what will enable you to live as the, as the person that you've been made to live. Look at it. Admire it. And here are the ways to get it. Join the family. It is not 
found in abstraction. It is found by learning and absorbing through life-on-life engagement. Choose the right path. Don't be a fool that stumbles into a cave. Let Christ open your eyes so that you walk into the sunlit uplands. It is a choice. And then keep your whole life fit. Heart, mouth, eyes, feet. A friend of mine has a friend who, a female friend, who she... she quite normal, proportioned-looking woman who got the running bug. I didn't see her for a year. He said when, when he saw her again, um, she looked like Paula Radcliffe. Um, uh, that may not, to most people, be very attractive, but here's the lesson. What you habitually give yourself to is what you become. The way you habitually use your body is the way it grows. Whether you, whether you want to be a bodybuilder or a fashion model or a long-distance runner or you give all of your attention to your mind and become uh, uh, alongside it a couch potato, you will be shaped by your habits. I've discovered an absolute rule that I've seen in every, I've discovered in every marriage that I have admired. When I've got close enough to know the story in detail, I have seen that it has been worked out through deep, long-term faithfulness through difficulty. 100% of the marriages, the good marriages that I have seen have been like that. And so it is to your marriage to wisdom. Deep, long-term faithfulness through difficulty. She will exalt you. She will protect you. She will give you success. But you have to be faithful to her. Solomon says, come on now. You've seen the good life. Choose it. Choose Jesus. Jesus.